Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details All right, Corey, we've got some really important stuff to talk about today, but I know you're not feeling great, which is why we are recording this via Zoom. So we'll skip all the fluff and let's just dive into the topic. Today, we're talking about fascism. Thanks for your consideration, Kellen. The number one thing I want to do right now at 1030 at night is talk about fascism. The very next thing I want to do is go lay down and die. So (laughs) we'll hammer through this. I think we've got some great stuff here. I'm excited about this topic. I mean, I'm not excited about fascism, but I think it's extremely relevant. And we have had people say, you guys aren't political enough on the podcast. You guys don't talk about fascism enough. And I agree. Not that we're not political enough. Kellen and I just are not generally political people. But the topic of fascism, especially in the US and Europe right now, is incredibly important. And it's going to become more and more relevant every year every election cycle that goes by. So fascism is one of those words that goes around a lot. And you see people accusing each other of being fascist all the time. We hear about Antifa, which is anti-fascist. But I think a lot of people may not fully understand what fascism is. Um, Maybe the difference between fascism and something like a dictatorship or fascism and authoritarianism. So if there is any confusion around that, I thought it might be good to just define a couple of those terms, make sure we understand the difference and exactly what it is we're talking about when we say fascism. It's funny you say that because I have now spent hours studying the topic and I've learned a lot of great things, but even I 
don't know that I can pinpoint a definition of fascism. I mean, I found a lot of different definitions of fascism, but the term is used so broadly in so many contexts that I don't think we can simply say this is what it always means when someone says fascism. I think the best we can do is say, this is what we're referring to when we talk about fascism on this episode. Yes, 100%. That's correct. I ran into the same thing where there are a lot of different definitions. It can mean different things to different people. Um, this episode is going to be what fascism seems to mean to the majority and what, what we mean when we talk about it. So first off, I'm going to go through just two other terms here. One is autocracy. So an autocracy is a government system in which one leader or a very small group of leader holds all the power. Similar to an autocracy is a dictatorship, which is a form of government that gives unilateral power to one person, and they are not held responsible by any constitutional restraints, right? There's no group to hold them responsible in a dictatorship. Now, fascism is a political philosophy, so it's not necessarily a government system. Someone can be fascist and not be a dictator. But the, the best definition I could sort of come up with was a political philosophy or movement characterized by the elevation of the nation and or a specific race while ignoring the rights of the individual. Under fascism, individual liberty is lost, and it's especially dangerous to a minority group of people. So that was my own kind of putting those together. We will give more specifics into some of those areas as we go through the episode. But to just hammer home what, what we're talking about when we say fascism versus like a dictatorship, you can have a dictator who is fascist or a dictator who is not fascist. Some of those really important ideologies of a fascist leader, again, is elevation of the nation and or a specific race, ignoring the rights of the individual. So putting nationalism over the rights of a person. It's often accompanied by xenophobia, anti-immigration policies, and a disdain for minority groups. Yeah, I've found that there are subtle nuances between a number of terms. You've discussed a few of them already, but like populism, authoritarianism, ultranationalism, it's all very similar. You know, fascism is different than populism because of what you mentioned, right? It's exalting a particular leader or race or state rather than the people in general. Though it can be said that populist beliefs and fascist beliefs can go hand in hand. A populist leader can have fascist beliefs. For sure. It's also interesting to me that fascism is categorized as being on the right, on the far right, but it can't really be associated with conservatism because typically under fascism, folks don't really have rights outside of community interest and you don't really have private property in that your stuff is no longer untouchable by the state. So parsing out all the similarities and differences in terms, I think can be really difficult. I think somebody can claim that they're not a fascist and yet they can be a fascist. But there are a few things that I noticed just from my side, I'm, as I was doing research regarding what you typically see when you see a fascist movement or a fascist government. So typically there is like an us versus them mentality. And I think you highlighted that really well in your definition. You also typically see either a promotion of violence or at least the sentiment that like violence is necessary or it's a means to an end. Right. So it's, it's justified. Right. When we talk about left and right, you know, on the left, a simple definition is trying to make everyone equal. And depending on where you land on that spectrum, right? On the left, typically the left condemns 
like the purest forms of capitalism. On the right, there's usually this sentiment that inequality is unavoidable or even desirable. And, and the right typically supports the current economic structure. So again, it goes back to that idea that I find interesting, which is that fascism is almost always categorized as being on the ultra right, the far right. And like we mentioned before, the term is overused, but oftentimes it's basically just a synonym for bully. Yeah. You know, when someone says that's a fascist leader, they're basically calling that person a bully. So those were some of the things that I noticed. Yeah. And there's, like we've said, the actual definition, it's not like you're either 100% a fascist or you're 0% a fascist, right? For example, you might be conservative and maybe you have anti-immigration ideology. That's not going to necessarily make you a fascist, right? Maybe you have like no ultra-nationalism ideology. Maybe you've got zero tendency to enact violence. Maybe you're anti-militarism and, and things like that. So, so, so to say one thing makes you a fascist, it's not really possible. And Corey, can I jump in here with a question for you? Yeah. You mentioned that people reach out to us and say, oh, you should talk about fascism on the podcast. It's a really important topic within the conversation of collapse. Based on the general consensus for what fascism means, why do you think we get so many people wanting us to speak about it in relation to collapse? Yeah, I think uh, because they think they're seeing it. And I think they're right. Where I think I start to really draw the line and say, okay, now we're getting into fascism is when personal liberties start to be removed in order to consolidate power. So you're having the beginnings of an autocracy or an oligarchy, right? Or authoritarianism. And while I don't think we're necessarily headed towards authoritarianism, I think we've already basically got an oligarchy. And we're seeing power continually being consolidated and we're seeing democracy being undermined, which is something that we've talked about in previous episodes. But when you mix that with a leader, or maybe not just one leader, but an ideology that is severely xenophobic, anti-immigration, ultra-nationalist, and all of those types of things, when we see overuse of military and police to squash opposition, well, yeah, now I think we're getting into the territory of fascism. Now, not only is it something that I feel like we're already starting to see, but I think it's going to continue to increase. It's going to be exacerbated as we continue down our collapse pathway. Well, I think that's a really insightful answer. I think it's spot on. I think fascist movements often gain momentum because people feel desperation. And what is claimed to be the principle behind it is this idea of like strength through unity. Which is great. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, we, we always talk about the importance of community on the podcast. Right. The issue is when fascists talk about strength through unity, they're talking about forced unity. And unity of some with the exclusion of others, which isn't really unity. Exactly. Unifying in the sense that, hey, we're going to squash anybody who disagrees. But obviously, that's not a great way to operate as a government. You mentioned before that it robs people of personal liberties, right? So when we think of examples of fascism, the most commonly cited are the Axis and allies. You think back to World War II and what was taking place at that time. Mussolini is kind of considered the primary example, the first fascist leader of the first fascist country, which was Italy. You know, he imposed totalitarian rule. 
And like we just talked about, his approach was to just crush any sort of political opposition, any ideological opposition. And with the Nazi party in Germany, Adolf Hitler adopted a lot of that. Uh, he kind of espoused his own form of fascism. And that's when you start to see terms like anti-Semitism and scientific racism, the use of eugenics, this extreme nationalism. And so it makes sense that when people see a leader in our modern political environment that they feel is a fascist, they often will compare that person to Mussolini or Hitler. The same could be said with Japan at the time. The thing is that in Italy, there was an actual fascist party and they declared themselves as fascists. But because so many awful, atrocious things happened after World War II, nobody ever really declared themselves a fascist, even though they might have adopted fascist ideologies. And I'm sure that some did individually, sort of the same way that people refer to themselves as Nazis or neo-Nazi groups, but especially in like a political setting, no one's going to call themselves like the fascist party. Exactly. So to be able to say, hey, here's a modern example of a fascist nation or a fascist government, it can always be disputed because they didn't declare themselves as fascist, but others can point to them and say, hey, what you're doing is fascist. So the fascinating thing about this topic is that collapse increases the likelihood of fascism and fascism increases or accelerates collapse. And so like so many of the things that we've talked about, it's this feedback loop and we are seeing collapse progress. And so there are reasons why we are likely going to continue to see fascism more frequently and with a stronger backing. So when it comes to why collapse increases the likelihood of fascism, well, part of it comes down to the fact that dwindling resources and increasing polarization are naturally going to lead to this like eat or be eaten mentality. There's that desperation as there's less food on the shelves or food is just harder to afford, or we're seeing that fuel is running out or, or there's supply chain issues. Whatever the case is, as, as there's that desperation, often people say, okay, we're competing here. It's eat or be eaten. We've got to strongly act against the enemy if we're going to stand a chance ourselves. So naturally that's going to drive away any desires for like cooperation or generosity, collaboration, and it builds an appetite for dominant authoritarian leadership. People in that kind of situation want to see a leader that will attack or destroy the enemies of their country or they even want to see a leader that will kind of purify their nation and remove what they consider to be the problematic portion of the population. And so you get this extreme sense of nationality that's kind of born out of people being dissatisfied with their situation. Yeah. So going off what you just said, it seems like if you want to be able to pinpoint if someone is a fascist, one way to do that is to look at who they declare as their enemy and who do they make their friends. You know, from a political standpoint, are immigrants their main enemy? Are they trying to rile fear through populist speeches and things that, that rile people up against a certain group of people like immigrants, like LGBTQ people, like minorities within the country itself? So while that won't tell you everything you need to know, I think that's a great starting point. Yeah. And when you think about times of like economic hardship, it's really easy to blame depressions 
or recessions on minorities, right? As a, as a leader, you can point to those that have the least amount of power who can't really defend themselves and find reasons why they're the problem. And people who are struggling, or at least are feeling more and more discomfort, will pile onto that. So that's when you get people saying, ah, oh, it's these immigrants, they're coming in and they're taking the jobs. Or it's this group of people, right? They're not paying taxes or, or whatever it is, like we need to keep them out and there's a willingness to kind of oppress whatever group is being blamed. So that's what you see internally. Externally, you might hear people starting to say, like, why are we helping other nations when we've got people suffering here? It's this sentiment that causes you to withdraw and focus inward. As you start to see more problems within your own nation, you then are less willing to collaborate with and help other nations. Both of those increase that sense of nationality. So another good way that you've just mentioned to spot a fascist is where exactly do their priorities lie in who to help and how to help them? Populist statements like America first and make America great again being the primary sort of slogans that you run on. I mean, and you use that as your identifier, you know, to suggest that, for example, America was once great and the things that are making America not great currently are the very enemies that you just spoke about those minorities, again, another great clue as to whether someone may or may not have fascist tendencies. Yeah, spot on. I think another reason why collapse increases the likelihood of fascism is that really no government is equipped to handle all the problems headed our way. So when you've got food insecurity and natural disasters and pandemics and poverty, inflation, resource scarcity, recessions, violence, all of that, there will be mismanagement of those situations and it's going to be on full display. And so people will lose trust in governments. We can already see that happening. And that erosion of trust makes people extra sensitive to corruption. They find opportunities to spotlight it. That erodes trust even more. And so this opens people's like hearts and their minds to accept a leader who comes in claiming to be revolutionary and that they're willing to take bold means to root out their political adversaries. When somebody comes in and says in a really strong way, like I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of the rot, to get rid of all the corruption and not that claiming to get rid of corruption is a bad thing, but when you're saying we're going to do this, even if it requires violence. The people have already been primed because they've seen all the corruption and they've lost trust in their government to be okay with that. Which is why we have so many people, I don't know the stats off the top of my head, claiming that January 6th was either a peaceful protest or that it was justified. Sometimes I get shell-shocked thinking about what happened that day and realizing that I've not thought about it in a while or I've forgotten about it and then going back to realizing what went on, what the attempt was. And it leaves me shook, right? Before that is everything that you talked about, which was complete erosion in trust in our government. And this is coming from both parties, multiple impeachments, a complete botching of the COVID-19 pandemic and its recovery, ignorance or turning a blind eye to what's happening economically in the K-curve, the plight of middle class and below, all of those things add up. And to be honest, regarding impeachment, I saw a pretty good case made in an article recently for why Biden will also likely be impeached in the coming year, or there will at least be an attempt made. And it scares me to think that every presidential election now we're going to have an impeachment. They mean nothing anymore. Nobody's removed from power. 
it's simply a show, but it continues to erode that trust. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, that sacred aura of the center, that respect that goes with the government disappears and it's replaced by just ugly corruption and rot. Yeah, if people felt a lot of trust in their government, a lot of patriotism in a positive way, they wouldn't give any attention to some extremist who's trying to rise to power, who's touting all these fascist philosophies. But some even point it back to Watergate and say that Watergate was like a big turning point for the US because up to that point, people genuinely trusted their government, felt such love and respect and trust and admiration. And it was kind of eye-opening to see that there was some real extreme corruption. And it seems like since then, it's just been a saga of corrupt politicians. Most of us don't trust politicians on the right or on the left. And there's things about the underlying principles of the right that I agree with and with the left that I agree with. Just to clarify, Kellen, when you say left, are you talking about American left, like liberalism, or are you talking about left left? Because for most of the world, the left is not American liberals. American liberals are centrist at best, but usually right of center as well. Good point. And we don't need to dive into my personal political beliefs. Basically, I feel like there's validity with certain principles and points and philosophies across the spectrum. I guess what I'm saying is that when you don't trust the government and you feel like your political leaders are either parasites or they're actively doing harm, then you're going to be much more receptive to a fascist leader who comes in saying, I'm here to do the hard thing, what no one else is willing to do, even though it's going to be ugly, it might be violent, but I'm going to take care of this problem. And that's where we get to what you spoke about earlier, where you said it's interesting that fascism is a far-right philosophy when so much of what conservatives believe in is less government, less power given to the government and more power to the individual. But like you said, when the desperation is high enough and a populist leader achieves their goal of riling up people against an enemy, then they are willing to start saying, yes, like you just said, we will do whatever it takes for you to succeed in this goal of saving us. We will give up some personal liberties. We will resort to violence, whatever that is. And then you've made a sudden shift from a typical small government conservative to someone radicalized on the far right. Yeah, and I feel like it's such a tricky thing because at some point, an uprising, a revolution, some form of violence might be what's necessary. And when any leader comes in and says, it's time to get rid of the corruption, of course, that's going to resonate. Like we would all love to get rid of the corruption from our political leaders. It's just the twisting of reality and the extremism and giving up values, distorting things to such a degree that you're actually going to target a minority group of people. You know, th those are the things that we have to recognize as a slippery slope and have to actively make sure we avoid. So another reason why collapse will likely increase the prevalence of fascism is that we're going to see a lot of mass migrations with climate refugees and political refugees. And that has the potential for people to become extremely guarded, very nationalistic. It creates this like they are the problem mentality because let's face it, any nation accepting refugees does take on a burden, right? There are impacts to the economy. There's a lot of extra effort and energy that's required in order to help those people get on their feet. But hopefully with any nation, people care enough about other human beings that they're willing to take in refugees and do it the right way. 
obviously not putting their own people at danger or removing the liberties of their own people, but actually finding some form of generosity. But the point is that the increase in mass migrations will likely promote an increase in harsher borders and crackdowns on criminals in general, as that is more fully supported by the population that allows people to justify the actions of a fascist leader. One article that I read talked a lot about fascism, especially like successful fascism of the past, usually involving some sort of secret police, some sort of police branch that will specifically oppress those who challenge the authority of that center, right, of that government leader. This was seen very obviously in Hitler's secret police. And while maybe we haven't seen this explicitly up to this point, you do see a rise in militias, dozens of different groups of people. You've seen videos of them training online. A lot of people call it LARPing. And you see them show up and they will fight it out, right? They will clash with Antifa or with protesters. And this has already resulted in deaths. And while it's disorganized at the moment, uh, that has the possibility of changing. And I, I saw something interesting. There was an article, a headline on Twitter. The person that posted it said something like, watch this militia prepare to battle Antifa or something like that. And the top comment on that said, the headline should read, watch this militia prepare to aid the police in oppressing minority individuals. So it was like this idea that right now there's a non-official partnership sort of happening. Every time we see these protests, every time we see something going on in the summers, especially with Black Lives Matter and things like that, the militias are there and they're pretty much every time communicating with police. You can see them there. They've, I've seen them give hugs, high fives, chatting before or after. And that certainly seems like one way in which that begins. Well, one other aspect of all this that we haven't mentioned is related to supply chain disruptions. We've done episodes on this. We've talked about how we can expect to see more supply chain disruptions going forward. And as that happens globally, it creates more geopolitical tension between nations and it lends to people wanting to become more economically independent as a nation and to say, hey, we don't want to depend on that country or that country to get a certain material or good or product. We need to bring that home. And so doing that causes people to support a more aggressive foreign policy. Again, decreasing the collaboration, increasing that sense of like dog eat dog world. We're going to take care of our own, do what's best for us, which just breeds that nationalism that we've talked about. And beyond that, it also leads back to an anti-foreigner type of mentality. If there's a specific country or ethnicity or people associated with that resource, if it's a resource that you can't get in plentiful enough amounts locally, well, when it's not making its way to you, if we've hit that peak resource, suddenly it's the fault of, of those people, right? So for example, we talked about phosphates recently. We talked about how a huge proportion of those are found in Morocco. Well, if we hit peak phosphates and suddenly we're not getting enough of that resource and there's not enough to produce here locally, well, all of a sudden it's the Moroccans' fault, right? And that leads to this, again, opportunity for more forms of xenophobia and, like you said, ultranationalism. Yeah, so all of those things we've just mentioned caused me to feel really concerned about the future because we do know there will be more supply chain disruptions and mass migrations and distrust in government and, and all these things that are going to open the door for more fascism. I'll mention just a few ways that fascism also accelerates collapse. 
So one of those is that when you're focused on getting ahead of other nations, you're not trying to work together to eliminate global threats. So if we become more aligned with this ultra nationalist ideology here in the U.S., we're not going to work with European nations and Asian nations and African nations to try to fight climate change. We're not going to work with other countries in trying to curb our use of resources that we know we're running out of. We're going to do what's best for us in the short term. And as we ignore those larger problems, those problems, as we know, are going to make collapse happen quicker and with more intensity. You know, it feels like one of the first things that Donald Trump did in 2016 was remove the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accords. That's a perfect example of what you're saying. In the short term, America is going to thrive by the status quo, right? Or even ramping up the amount of consumption. This idea of screw everybody else, you guys can worry about the climate. And even though we're like the worst emitters, we're just going to forget about this. That's a great example. Another thing to look out for here is that as minorities are targeted, it's not a surprise that that will create a lot of hate and distrust. If I'm a minority and I'm oppressed somehow or targeted by law enforcement officers or whatever, I'm going to feel a lot of resentment. I'm going to become more polarized. I'm going to start to feel that us versus them mentality. And I'm going to be more willing to move in the direction of rebellion or even revolution. So those fascist approaches at trying to label minorities as an enemy and attack them will likely only destabilize the situation even more, which leads us closer and closer to a collapsing nation. And then we mentioned that, you know, we start to withdraw from helping other nations as we're trying to take care of ourselves. We become more self-centered or self-focused. Well, that fascist approach is going to increase tensions. If we've got a nation that suddenly gets just clobbered by a natural disaster and they're asking us for help, they can see we're in a position to help them. We're better off than they are, but we turn that down. For example, as nations break out into war like Russia and Ukraine, if we're taking the fascist approach and being solely focused on ourselves as a nation, not willing to help them, there's going to be resentment between nations and those geopolitical tensions will increase. And there are lots of arguments from every angle regarding how much involvement the U.S., specifically the U.S. military should have in anything, right, that's, that's global in nature. We've talked a bit in the past about the history of the U.S., encroaching where it's where it shouldn't belong but at the same time you make a great point here where the u.s has made promises to certain countries treaties uh, ukraine specifically in regards to their nuclear non-proliferation and and all that that when you start to turn inward and you refuse to honor those treaties that have been made uh, you're leaving countries in the dust not only are you hurting your relationship with those countries but you're allowing bully countries to have whatever they want we are of course living in a really precarious time right now feels more and more every day like possibly on the brink of a world war with russia increasing their aggression this new announcement just recently of of a false flag sort of dirty bomb attack and then you have china and everything that's happening there with their increasing rhetoric against taiwan and who knows what the future will bring this could peter out and things could level or we could go full-blown into world war three who really knows but like you're saying, those tensions only increase and the likelihood of war increases with fascism. Kellen, those are all really great points. I think there's a lot to digest there. This is an episode that doesn't have a lot of numbers like we typically do, right? This is more of a, an abstract 
topic, which requires an exercise in logical thinking. But the points that you just made, I feel were done very logically. And I do think they paint a really bleak picture of our current and future situation. So jumping from there, we want to touch on one other topic that's rather sensitive in the collapse community, I feel. And it's the idea of eco-fascism. So for a good while, I was, I was a little confused by this term. And I think rightfully so. I think other people may be misled by this as well. Which, by the way, I've heard the term both said as eco-fascism and eco-fascism. I'm going to say eco here. Don't at me if you say it a different way. So I think the most straightforward definition is just to say that eco-fascism combines far-right fascist ideologies, which is what we've talked about this entire episode, combines that with environmentalism. And for me, my brain automatically just like does not compute. There's like this cognitive dissonance there. Because we're talking about a far-right ideology that's concerned with environmentalism. Most people on the far-right are complete climate change deniers, right? Or so I thought. So one other quick definition I'll read here. It says, the most simple definition would be someone with a fascist politic or a fascist worldview that is invoking environmental concern or environmental rhetoric to justify the hateful and extreme elements of their ideology. I think we are seeing a transition of outright climate denialism, shifting towards climate change recognition, but not accepting the correct reasons or the correct solutions. To me, it's like if somebody listened to this podcast, they already had far-right ideology, they were half asleep while they listened to us talk, and they took from that, oh crap, we're going to collapse, and I'm going to combine that with my far-right ideology to come up with some absurd solution. There's a lot of talk about this amongst the collapse community than the collapse sphere, because the problems that we're facing are very real, right? The primary of them being overpopulation and overconsumption. Those are the two that we've made arguments in the past for and against. We've talked about how those two combine, but somebody who takes overpopulation as the number one issue, the number one concern, their logical approach is to say overpopulation is why we're going to collapse. What are the areas of the world that are overpopulating? What, where are the birth rates the highest? And then they take that next step of hateful rhetoric, these fascist ideologies, xenophobia, anti-immigration, and in the worst cases, genocide, right? So they're not focusing on the fact that overconsumption from wealthy countries is playing probably the largest role. Someone in a small village in Africa who is consuming food grown in their own village you know, they're not polluting nearly as much individually as us in the first world countries with our heated homes, air conditioning, our cars, having our food delivered to us from across the world. They're not thinking about corporations, the ones they love so much, uh, being the root of the problem. They're blaming it on people and the wrong people. Just as a note there, kind of to put it into perspective, the three countries in the world with the highest birth rates are Chad, Mali, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. So these are the types of countries that ecofascists might blame for overpopulation, but the average person in the Democratic Republic of Congo has a carbon footprint 475 times smaller than the average person in the US. So to say, oh, they're having more babies than we are, therefore they're the issue is just so completely flawed. Yeah, it's a great example. And it seems like often people have a tendency to jump to what they think is the simplest solution. They don't really think through all the complexities. I remember hearing people when Russia invaded Ukraine just saying, oh, we should just nuke the whole country of Russia. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, you know, in their minds, it's like, oh, 
Sure. Kill all those millions of people just to get back at them. Problem solved. Right. So it's almost like it's either just a really simplistic way of thinking, or it's just a really extreme way of thinking where you're always willing to jump to the strongest course of action. So what you just said actually um, reminded me of something I saw this week, which I found really powerful. Um, I was watching a documentary, did not expect it to have anything to do with our topic or with collapse in general. It's on Netflix. It's called Explained the Mind. So it's just one of those Netflix things where they will walk you through like different parts of your brain and how they work and examples. But in one episode, they talked about why people fall into extremism and highlighted the story of a woman who during the pandemic found herself radicalized. She was a full QAnon believer, which by the way, the documentary had some numbers around the number of people who believe QAnon and it was like 30% or something. It was so high, but she actually went viral for a tirade that she went on in a store because they asked her to wear a mask. And there's a video of her freaking out at the staff. She's going full Karen. She's throwing stuff. I think she may have assaulted somebody. But in this highlighting of her, they talk to her about her change because she has seemingly changed. She is de-radicalized. I don't know necessarily how far, but she fully recognizes that she was swept away in something that wasn't real. And while she didn't use the word fascism, um, it was clear that, that that was the direction that she was headed. And one of the things quoted in that documentary as being something that helps the most in those situations is embracing complexity. And Kellen, you just mentioned it's this simplicity mindset of what's the quickest, easiest solution to this and how can we get most people on board for it? When really it's embracing the complexity of situations that the true answers lie. And even if there aren't answers, at the very least, you're not making the absurdly wrong ones. Collapse is extraordinarily complex. We're 110 episodes into this bad boy and we're not stopping anytime soon. There is so much to talk about. Each episode that we've done could be three hours long and we still wouldn't have covered adequately each topic, I feel like. So when you try and take a problem as complex as collapse and try and boil it down to placing blame on one person, you are going to get some wackos come out of the woodwork. And I wanted to highlight a few that have happened just in the last few years globally where this exact thing has happened. So there have been at least three mass murder terrorist events in the last few years where the killer has been a self-proclaimed eco-fascist or at least showed eco-fascist beliefs in the manifesto that they left behind for why they did what they did. So one to highlight is the Christchurch killer. I'm actually just going to read something uh, from one of the articles, which we'll have sourced in the description. It says, the Christchurch killer who shot dead 51 people at two mosques described himself as an ethno-nationalist eco-fascist and called for ethnic autonomy, as well as the preservation of nature and the na natural order. In his diatribe, the Australian man linked climate change to overpopulation by non-Europeans, which is one of the central ideas of eco-fascism. Again, reading here from an article, the El Paso shooter, so this is the second of the three shooters, named his manifesto an inconvenient truth. Presumably after Al Gore's 2006 climate change documentary, the decimation of the environment, he said, is creating a massive burden for future generations. Corporations are heading the destruction of our environment by shamelessly over-harvesting resources. If we can get rid of enough people, then our way of life can be more sustainable. He also blamed America's consumer culture for environmental damage. And I found that really interesting. You know, he's calling out corporations here and consumption, overconsumption. 
but his main point seems to be getting rid of enough people. And elsewhere in his manifesto, he declares that his goal was to stop the Hispanic invasion of Texas. Almost as if he was saying, yes, America is a major contributor to consumption, but it's because of all the brown people coming here. And so that's the solution, which is just ludicrous. It's a way to try to justify mass murder and fascism. Now, the reason that I feel that this is going to continue is that, like I said, there is this shift between climate denialism to climate acceptance. There's not going to be a way to completely ignore it for much longer. The problems from climate change are going to be manifest, and it would take a real special person in the coming years to reject that. And so instead of looking stupid rejecting it, the idea is to maintain power by placing blame on someone else for its, for its cause. And the solution being the either eradication of those people or by not allowing those people to enter your country. So like Kellen described, in the future, we're going to see an increase in mass migration. And again, there's a lot to be said about, does a country just let every migrant in and figure it out? Does there need to be some level of control? But no matter how you look at it, Ecofascism is going to overstep in its efforts to deny those people any aid or entry, and not only that, but make them the enemy and rile up people against them. It really is so tough to find the right balance in a lot of these things. When we talk about ecofascism and the extremes to which some of these people are willing to go, it makes me think of that kind of bizarre conversation we had on the podcast with David Skirbina. Mm. Oh, yeah. And you'll remember, he's kind of a fanboy of the Unabomber. And, you know, he sees technology as this big issue, this problem that's going to cause the collapse of civilization and will cause billions of people to die. And at one point, you know, he was saying, what's the big deal if a bomb kills 20 people, 30 people, if the intention with that bomb is to wake people up and it will later save billions of people's lives? And that idea of the ends justifying the means, there's a whole spectrum from mild to extreme of what kind of action people can take. I see almost a new article or video every day from Just Stop Oil, you know, people that are throwing soup or paint or whatever on these famous paintings or sculptures, gluing their hands to the wall or to the picture frame and trying to get the message out of why we need to stop pulling so much oil out of the ground. And you might talk to one person who says that's really extreme and that's damaging property that's really valuable. And they see that as something completely inappropriate. Well, others might say, no, that is so meaningless, whatever piece of property they're defacing in comparison to getting the attention this issue deserves. And so you can see why we get these paradoxes with all of this complexity that people can't really navigate and why people choose to adopt these eco-fascist ideologies. You can see why the mind goes there. And by the way, I'm not saying that just stop oil is eco-fascism, but I think as everything escalates, as there's more and more problems, as people get more desperate, you're going to see more of a willingness for people to take extreme action. Excellent points. And going along with what you were just explaining, I actually intended to talk about that a little bit. So there is a difference in terminology between something like eco-fascism and eco-terrorism. The government classifies things like don't stop oil, uh, especially some of the groups that were really popular in like the 80s and 90s. There's one called the ELF, which by the way, I want to thank one of our patrons who recently introduced me to a podcast called Burn Wild. 
It's a recently new podcast where they talk about this group specifically, but they would go and like burn or blow up buildings that were going to do or were doing environmental damage. They made sure not to do any damage to the people. They didn't want to harm anyone at all. It was just the property. And they were surprised when they were being labeled as eco-terrorists along with other terrorists, terrorists who were blowing people up, right? Their, their rewards for their capture was the same as them. And they were blown away by that. But the government did classify that the destruction of property out of a motivation to cause fear could be labeled as terrorism. But that is not eco-fascism. And the reason being, number one, they're not targeting people. And number two, they are especially not targeting minorities. There's no xenophobia there. The quote, violence that they're committing is against property, not hurting animals or people. Their solution that they're trying to create is drawing attention to the situation, not to actually solve the problem by, by blaming a minority. And really quick, you know, we've said the word minority here several times. Fascism doesn't necessarily have to be directed towards minorities. There have been examples of the past where it wasn't a minority. But in our present case, that seems to be the most common example is that it's minorities involved and targeted. I have one other interesting note to mention here about minorities, because on the one hand, is it okay to say there are too many people consuming too much stuff? Well, yes, that is okay. But the moment that it becomes, oh, the blame is on this minority of people who didn't choose their circumstances, well, then it becomes a problem. Is there a minority that's at fault? Well, yeah, the minority 1% of wealth holders in the world who by choice are taking advantage of capital and our capitalist system to elevate themselves over others. You know, personally, that's, that's where I place much of the blame for our current problem. The majority of the blame should be on the system as a whole that we've all been born into, a system that allows for these people to gather the capital that they have. But the, the fact of the matter is when we talk about the mega ultra wealthy with their billions of dollars, I feel justified in saying there's blame there because that was something they chose. Someone who was born in Mexico and is forced out of their country for whatever reason, they did not choose their circumstances. They are not to blame and they should not be targeted for that. So ecofascism also doesn't have to mean someone who's willing to go and mass murder a bunch of people, right? It's an ideology that is growing. It's inherent in so many conversations on a low level. Again, perhaps especially in the collapse conversation, I do see posts on the subreddit that can come off pretty eco-fascisty. And we just have to be really careful to completely reject eco-fascist or fascist ideas in general. Again, it's okay to say there is this problem with overconsumption. That's, that's not a problem. It's true. There probably are too many people and they are consuming too much stuff, but we can't let ourselves or stand by while other people pick the wrong answers, the wrong solutions. Kellen and I believe that there isn't really any solution to collapse at this point, but there are definitely wrong answers and there are wrong answers that can lead to a lot of pain and a lot of trouble in the world. Yeah. And even though you and I, Corey, don't necessarily believe that there's a ready solution for us to adopt to prevent collapse, I think we agree and we've talked about there are plenty of ways to mitigate collapse, slow it down. And I applaud anyone who takes action to improve our global situation, to see a problem and to identify a solution or to find ways to chip away at the problem, attack the problem. That's good. That's great. But I think what you said earlier is really wise, right? We don't want to attack the wrong problem. And again, any fascist or eco-fascist ideology 
typically is oversimplifying. It's not recognizing the complexities. It's overgeneralizing a certain group of people or promoting an approach that isn't really solving the actual problem. Yeah, really well said. So the future that I envision is one where we shift from the current state of the GOP saying things like Democrats only want to push for climate change action because it makes them more money, which is likely true in a lot of ways. And Republicans will say, and so therefore climate change is false. I see that shifting towards climate change is real and humanity is doomed. Humanity is in a lot of trouble. We have to take, this is going back to what you said earlier, Kellen, we have to take dramatic action now to save humanity. And I have the solution. And if you want to be saved, then follow me, do what I say, give up some liberties and some rights, and we're going to make it happen. And there's potential for that to come from the Democratic Party as well. Absolutely. I think it's worth just calling out that a more desperate situation, or at least the recognition of how desperate our situation is, can promote extremes on both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. I know that in this episode, we've talked more about the far right because we're talking about far right ideologies. I am in no way defending Democrat leadership in, in this conversation. It feels like our overall political situation is disintegrating. Chris Hedges has referred to Trump in the past as an incompetent fascist, and he fears the rise coming next of a competent fascist. Again, as time goes on, that could come from anywhere. But I do always have this fear in the back of my mind of someone who knows their way through the bureaucratic processes of Washington, D.C. with a very loud minority following willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish those aims. And amongst themselves, they make it look pretty. They make it look heroic. They use words like making America great again. But the manner by which it is achieved is grotesque and simply cannot be accepted. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.